I do think that no matter what a person's experience is, we tend to all find some way to organize and execute the tasks that we have, but they don't always call it project management. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. So, is your institution adopting a new learning management system? Or implementing an entirely new curriculum? Or onboarding five new academic programs simultaneously? Congratulations! What happens next for the everyday stakeholders, such as instructors, program directors, administrators, staff, designers, and not to mention the actual students, who will be impacted by such a complex undertaking. More than likely, some form of project management will enter the scene. The Project Management Institute, or PMI for short, defines project management as the application of knowledge, skills, tools, and techniques to project activities to meet the project requirements. And they clearly note that projects are demarcated as temporary, unique endeavors with distinct scope and resources. Project management as a profession and collective discipline represents a tremendous amount of associated history, science, standards, methods, and body of knowledge. The project management profession is often strongly associated with rigorous, regulated industries, such as engineering, architecture, construction, and software development. There are numerous popular approaches and methods, including Agile, Scrum, Kanban, Lean, Waterfall, and Six Sigma. However, despite all this complexity, the common foundational process groups are defined as initiating, planning, executing, monitoring and controlling, and closing. For context in today's discussion, the IBD team would like to share a general disclaimer that none of us are certified project managers, and we have little formal education in this arena. So when in doubt, please consult an actual project manager, or perhaps check out PMI's sixth edition guide to the project management body of knowledge. However, it's been our practical experience that the work of managing projects is a common responsibility for those of us working in the higher education environment. Instructional design and technology professionals are often well positioned to centrally coordinate projects that naturally emerge throughout the administration of academic programs. But tasks and roles are often relatively informal and inconsistently defined. Applying a little bit of project management structure and strategy can go a long way towards success. And stay tuned because after we ponder the practicalities of project management, it'll be time for another hot topic. Today we're going to chew on the notion that all academic professionals should have at least some formalized instruction in pedagogy before embarking on their own teaching adventures. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Katretiwa, Aaron Kraft, And we are very excited to have a new member of our Edson College Academic Operations team joining us today, Julie McGinnis. Julie is our program coordinator and all-around sanity-preserving guru. (laughs) Thank you, Jeanette and fellow team members. I'm very happy to be here. So, Julie, you've just recently started with us at Edson College, but you've previously held a variety of roles in higher ed and beyond. Tell us a little bit about your professional background. Sure. Uh, Well, for the majority of my career, I really have worked in the healthcare field in a variety of roles, 
that have always included some form of project management, whether it be in marketing and business development, event planning, or training. And as in education, healthcare is definitely focused, or at least it should be, on optimizing efficiency in all areas so that patients receive the most effective care and the best service. I actually began my career at ASU with the Fulton School of Engineering's Office of Global Outreach and Extended Education, a long title, which provides professional development opportunities and advanced education for international academic institutions as well as government and corporations. And we offered engineering professionals non-credit short courses as well as custom programs for companies and online graduate degree and certifications. So I was managing those programs, which involves students and organizations from local companies here in Arizona, like Intel, Honeywell, Boeing, and some of those large engineering type companies, as well as international companies that came from anywhere from South Korea, Mexico, the Philippines, to Ireland, Colombia, Vietnam, and China. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of moving parts and projects involved with the variety of programs that we offered. So anything from coordinating curriculum with the faculty to arranging travel, uh, event planning, scheduling transportation, and just all sorts of additional little details. And if you don't think that organizing golf tee times for 26 engineers from a steel company in South Korea doesn't take some project management tools, (laughs) you would be very surprised. (laughs) Wow, that is quite the diverse set of experiences (laughs) you've had. So you can be our subject matter expert today. Yes, well, I don't know about that, but I've definitely learned to multitask, I can tell you. Fantastic. Well, Julie, we're so glad you're here today to explore the realities of project management, given that scope of expertise you bring. So first question out to the group. I am guessing that despite our collective lack of formal certification in this arena, we'd all agree that we do currently or have previously done this kind of work before, right? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. I think it's tacitly involved. Every time I have an instructional design project, I end up going through these uh, project management processes and groups, but it's not something that I was aware of until, well, recently. So that more organic understanding of what's occurring, you didn't have maybe the names and the structure, but it was the work was happening. It was, it was happening in, in a very similar manner that, uh, that's laid out with the, the popular five groups, you know, initiating, planning, executing, monitoring, closing. I do think that no matter what a person's experience is, by default, we tend to all find some way to organize and execute the tasks that we have um, in our job. But they don't always call it project management. But really, that's essentially what we're all doing, I think. And I think I realized it more when I was part of um, the Commission of Status of Women, their staff mentoring program here at ASU. One of our workshops that we did was on project management, and we had some various project managers come in and speak um, from a panel. And as they spoke and talked about the work that they're doing across the university, it started to kind of click and make some connections as to what we do here as instructional designers. So that was my my big aha moment. Well, I'm glad you brought out that whole instructional designer lens because, you know, some of those professional competencies that relate to instructional design in general, 
They certainly include what I'll call the informal aspects of project management. And, and some competency statements really are more formalized. But we do this work, and I think this sort of process group idea, this structure, we're all doing this analyze, design, develop, evaluate work that sort of resonates with us in a similar way, even if we never had that specific framework in mind. So on average, then, what percentage of your regular everyday work efforts do you estimate are actually devoted to project management tasks today? I like that you brought up the word tasks, because as I was reading some of the articles um, in our resources and I was looking at some some of the websites and they had, you know, the the takeaways basically from getting certified as a project manager. And one of the takeaways that I read kind of really stuck because she said that her main takeaway was that it wasn't a task. It was a series of tasks that are created with project management. So that word task um, really stuck to me because it just, it kind of made it a little more clear on exactly what project management is because you start to think of the project itself as the task but it's not necessarily that it's all the pieces that require that are required or need to happen in order to have a successful completion of a project right that's that's a really good point i was going to say i would say probably 75% is project management when I think about the tasks that I have to do, the emails that I have to to return and organize and the phone calls, I mean, I, I really look at my day-to-day activity as one big project management. <laughs> it's true. So, <laughs> Well, and that day-to-day sort of ongoing workflow, while that might not be necessarily the formalized definition of project management, I think we do tend to rely on that notion, those coordinating kinds of capacities that are you know, we're managing projects, even if it's mm-hmm. not project management. Yeah. We had an experience here fairly recently where we were supporting the migration of 200 courses for the college from one learning management system to another. And had that work had to be completed within a year. And I think that's a, a very distinct example of how we had to move from this more project management is whatever you're doing to something that has a very defined timeline, scope, responsibilities, and sort of dividing those pieces and parts up in a much more structured way. Yeah, for sure. I don't count the daily minutia as project management, you know, as an instructional designer for higher education. A lot of my job is to build, implement, and maintain courses within the learning management system. And to me, that's just the day-to-day minutia, uh, not to minimize it at all. However, it's the larger uh, initiatives, like you're talking about the year-long migration. It was so interesting to me that by the end of it, I had this emerging awareness that I just completed sort of like a, a project management process. And I'd had, I had no idea that I was even going into that at the beginning. But, uh, you know, we, we had addressed the questions at the beginning. We had defined our scope and we had delegated roles we were monitoring our process using various tools, and then we had our deliverable dates that yeah, we, we you had know, a, our deadlines. A very prescriptive timeline. Yeah, and uh, we we kept to it, and so by the end of it, suddenly I, I became aware of the uh, the integration of project management and instructional design through that particular project, 
And so with that in mind, I would say that it's usually the larger projects that I uh, embark on in the background of, of the day-to-day -day stuff. Those probably get the project management lens more than anything else for me. Yeah. So if we acknowledge the value, the importance of structured project management, capital P, capital M, why aren't there more project managers in the higher ed environment? Why don't we have designated PMs assigned at the beginning of every significant project? Or in other words, why are so many people just incidentally and informally doing this work on their everyday basis? I think it's, it's a bit of semantics. There is what the industry designates as quote unquote project management, where you are, you know, getting certified. And by their definition, I think it, it, includes things like, um, you know, overseeing the construction of a building or a mall or implementing a new computer system to a hospital. You know, those are, those are very black and white, numbers-driven, specific projects with deadlines. And so I think they don't, as Aaron was talking about uh, and Celia alluded to, the tasks, I think they don't really think of those as, as being part of, even though there are details involved. So you're not really a project manager unless you're doing something to that scale. And you're, That's a great point. you're looking at working with, you know, if you're in constructions, you've got all sorts of um, uh, people that you're trying to coordinate and it's, it's on a very large scale. So I think that's why to be a project manager, those are kind of the parameters that they set. And if you're just doing that in your daily life, you're not really a project manager, which, you know, can be discussed further and probably <laughs> argued a little bit. So, so I think that that's why um, you know the the time and the training and the cost that it takes to become a certified project manager is probably a little foreboding for those different industries that need something more on a day to day basis. I'm glad you brought up that point about sort of construction and mm -hmm. the, those sorts of industries too, because that notion of a dependency if the ground floor isn't built on time, what's it going to cost to the downstream development of the upper floors and so on, that this notion that there can be tremendous economic implications if projects aren't very carefully structured Correct. and controlled. Mm -hmm. But I think that that should carry over to every organization, no matter how big or small. And again, it's, it's a scalable type thing, but I mean, you really have to be organized with uh, your your time and your tasks and your projects to create the efficiency so that your organization is continuing to be profitable and everybody has jobs. So, but that's just kind of what I, what I think. When I think with, in reading those, the article seven popular project management methodologies and what they're best suited for, that really stuck out in, for me to make the connection to instructional design. In my thinking, our project management is more on the maybe curriculum or course development methodologies. To me, that that's our project management. Um, if you look at a lot of those PM methodologies, that uh, the pieces that are in there, so much of it matches up with the way we go through a course development process or um, a curriculum development process. You know, starting out with. What's our end goal? What are we trying to get to? 
And then moving through those various steps to have a complete creation. Maybe we're not building a building necessarily or constructing a building, but we are constructing a course. Um, I think the only big piece that we probably don't pay as close attention to, and this is where an actual project manager would come in, is looking at that, that time piece, that budget versus time resources exactly and i think as an instructional designer who does like freelance i think that's where they fit it in but when you're actually working for an institution where you're not thinking about your time versus budget with all the resources that you have you don't necessarily bring that piece in or you're not necessarily in control of other inputs in the sense that your subject matter expert You may recommend that they provide a certain amount of time, but you may not necessarily Mm be driving the bus for those resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good points. Well, yeah, there are parallels to be drawn. And that was uh, sort of the foundation of Jeanette and I's presentation over at the uh, OLC, what, Accelerate? Mm -hmm. Online uh, Learning Consortium. In Orlando, Florida this past year. Um, But we talked about the... The parallels that can exist between instructional systems design, particularly the ADDIE model and project management, at least the the most well-known project management group processes. So this was actually detailed in a book called Project Management Skills for Instructional Designers by Dorcas Cox. And according to Cox, the, for example, initiating process group in project management matches with the analysis phase of ADDI. The planning group matches the design phase. The combined executing and monitoring and controlling groups for project management match the combined development and implementation phases of ADDI. And the closing group matches the evaluation phase. Mm -hmm. What system is he going through for the project management the most common one, the like agile. Um, uh, well, or? so I, it's just those. Uh, it's the one um, I think defined by PMI and slash PMBOK. Oh, okay. Uh, the initiating, planning, executing, monitoring, and controlling and closing. Well, and those common process groups are generally understood as sort of the foundation, whereas the methods are a way of yes, putting those into practice. So. All of that being said, from the instructional design lens, from the project coordination lens, what sort of entry-level strategies would you recommend to someone who's just getting started with a new project? They don't have a lot of formal background in this area. How would you, how would you suggest they start? The way I started was the good old Excel spreadsheet. I mean, <laughs> no matter what your job entails, you can really get pretty organized with listing, listing your tasks and getting the dates and you can put notes in, you know, what needs to be done when. So that and Smartsheet has come along now. So um, choosing the right tools is critical. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but just for a basic tool, I think that this, the spreadsheet is a good way to start. At least it was for me. And then you can kind of work up from there. Yeah, I would definitely say some sort of way to map out um, the project and how you envision it. Um so that you're looking at what your end goal is and then figuring out the steps that are needed to get there and then also what resources you're needing to get there. But the biggest piece, I think, and where a lot of projects I feel fall apart is the communication and the clear understanding for all stakeholders as to what is needed, who needs to do what, 
And how is everyone going to collaborate? I think that's more than even just getting through the steps. It's the communication piece with all stakeholders. That's a good point. I would agree. We have to sketch out the scope of the project first. And what does that even mean is part of the investigation. Right. And then included in that will be your goals and also what important questions need to be answered before anything can even begin, which will probably lead to things like delegating responsibilities and so on. But that's I would start by defining the scope and whatever that means to you, run with it. And you, you got to start somewhere. So I know for me, it's always it's always hazy. And I, I, I'm always frustrated at the beginning of a project because I don't know the end result. <laughs> I, get, I get frustrated. <laughs> but then, you know, I remind myself, oh, no, that that's exactly what this is supposed to be is you're figuring it out. So define the scope first and uh, go from there. It's just writing an objective, right, Aaron? <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's all it is. <laughs> For me, this is kind of, well, I'll a two-part answer. In generality, I am big fan of a checklist for everything. I think even if you don't know where to start, it's pretty easy to grab a piece of paper or some sticky notes. We all know the sticky note thing. <laughs> um, and just start rapidly jotting down everything you can think of. As well as there are a lot of really good templates out there for somebody who's never really been faced with this task before. Um, we're going to include a example in our show notes for something called a project initiation document, I believe. And again, it's just a sort of checklisty item that you could use to begin sketching out the scope at the beginning of a project and get a handle on what needs to happen next. And then for a more slightly more specific example, one of the things that I feel like worked really well for us when we initiated that learning management system migration is that we did something that we ended up calling 360 degree brainstorming, where we basically decided to step back at the sort of big picture and try to understand the questions we needed to ask first. And it wasn't even really about answering all the questions right away, but if we could generate a really good list of everything that we needed to kind of figure out at some point, it really helped us understand sort of the entirety of the project. And it, and it worked really well. I think you have to have a moment where you can ask stupid questions, those questions that you don't, you might feel too hesitant to, to say, but there needs to be a moment at the beginning where you can just have that brain dump, where you can just have that moment where you can put all your thoughts on the paper or you're, you're with your group of people and you, you just, everybody says whatever's on their mind and then you go from there, you start from there. Yeah, it's a free for all, but in the best possible way. With an objective, free for all yeah. towards a purpose. Very much so. Well, and, and Julie, I'm glad, I'm so glad you already touched on things like Excel and, Sh and Smartsheet as um, specific software solutions. Let's talk a little bit more about software because this categorically can be a little bit confusing. There are certainly a bunch of really um, sophisticated project management software tools out there. What have you all used? What have you heard about? Definitely Trello. I've used Trello here as well as some other work. I've also used Monday.com, which is a newer one that I hadn't worked with prior um, or before. But that one I'm currently using. Well, I'll jump in just going back to my and I'm not trying to be a commercial for the Fulton School of Engineering here at ASU. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I've definitely had exposure to the Lean and the Six Sigma programs, which are fantastic. Um, and it uh, with the lean, you can get a green belt uh, and a black belt, even though it's most associated with 
probably manufacturing. Um, you know, if you're talking about some of those smaller projects, um, you know, it's a really good general organization type um, of of software to use, and it's something you can do in the classroom, or you can you can get it online. It's pretty short and it's very inexpensive. Um, all the way up to you know, if you're doing really major projects, to the Six Sigma programs. And those methodologies uh, really provide a customer-focused, fact- and data-driven approach that guides the continuous improvement for those who are really working projects beyond their day-to-day activity. And um, I think it's uh, it's a more detailed and scientific way to approach and manage and execute your projects if you're doing it on a large scale. And it doesn't take a lot of time or, or money or mm-hmm. um, depending on which one you go for. But it's kind of got uh, a little bit of something for everyone, whether you're running a household or you're, you know, building them all. Yeah, I've seen that like Trello and Monday.com that I've used don't um, have like a time component. But the other one, Asana, does have a task piece, but it also has a time component. So you can see just about how much time you're spending on various pieces of the project, which is kind of nice to be able to go back and look at that. Yeah, that's, oh, that's great. Yeah. Especially when someone's yeah. asking you where your time's going. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. yeah Definitely. Sure. Or benchmarking mm-hmm. how long different parts of a project take. Or even, yeah, for like a new project, you can go back and look, okay, average time. That way you have that preparation piece for the beginning. My wife, who's also an instructional designer and has been on this podcast a couple of times, Mm -hmm. she is a big fan of Airtable. Oh, okay. I've heard, heard of it, good. never yes. seen it before. Like I the proper it. husband I am, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you this much. They liked what she was doing so much that they put her as an example on their webpage. Oh, great. So awesome. The craft Airtable, Google that. Nice. And, uh, but I'm, I'm just learning. Uh, I had no idea when I got into instructional design that project management was a thing, let alone a thing that I needed to learn. <laughs> so I've only had experience with the tools that have already been mentioned here because most of my project management experience has been here at the Edson College of Nursing. So. Well, you bring up something, though. You said something you need to learn. Have you needed to learn that? Or is this just that, oh, wait, I have been doing that? Do you feel like... It's a good question. You know. I think being able to give name to your processes sort of empowers... Mm-hmm. you to be more, more in control of them and to dictate the direction things go better. But if you look at it, for instructional design jobs, if you do, you know, if you go outside of higher ed, they will tell you specifically they want you to have some level of project management experience. So I think That's if true. you are looking to make a career in this field, you absolutely need to know mm-hmm. at least the fundamentals of project management. I don't know if it has to be even at the certificate level, but to just understand and be able to consciously be aware Mm-hmm. and therefore control the process better. I would agree in that especially our work is very collaborative and we generally have to have a lot of people in a team to yeah. do this work. That ability to collaborate and get things done, that's all connected oh, yeah. and very important. And I would say, yes, to be marketable, to be competitive, I think it's an important competency, at least to be passably familiar with the language and the, exactly. the foundational mm-hmm. steps. Yeah. Um, and on the software front, I certainly have used Trello, as, as Celia mentioned. I've used Asana a little bit. One thing that I learned in gathering some resources for, for this um, episode is that 
technically speaking, some of those aren't really project management software suites. They're more collaborative tools Mm -hmm. that we might use to do some of that work or manage some of the tasks in a project. Um, But sort of your more complex, sophisticated systems are much more regimented in the way that they work and the kinds of inputs that you have to have to develop a project And many years ago, I dabbled a little bit with Microsoft Project and I found it to be, again, very restrictive Mm -hmm. and it didn't it didn't really meet my needs at the time. So I never really went back and tried to use it again. So it's good that we have such diverse options, but at the same time, it can be a little bit confusing. Yes, you really have to dig in deep to those software tools to figure out what is going to work for what your needs are. Yep, absolutely. Well, you all have had a lot of creative ideas and recommendations for coping with the demands of project management. Let's move on to today's hot topic. Hot topic. So I ran across this Inside Higher Ed article by Colleen Flaherty titled Required Pedagogy Around the End of the Fall Semester, but I didn't have a chance to actually read it until this week. As I did, a couple things stuck out to me that I thought might be interesting for us to parse through our Hot Topics machine. And the basic premise is just reflecting on the importance of those who teach to formally learn how to teach and whether that should actually be occurring within the confines of their graduate program work. So right off the top, I think there's a sort of implicit philosophy and values that represented in this article. It's a very focused perspective from those immersed in the scholarship of teaching and learning, education nerds, instructional designers, and it borders on this edge of judgmentalism. I don't mean that to sound unnecessarily negative, but do you think this issue actually resonates with the subjects of the discussion? faculty and teaching assistants who are or will be a part of the instructional workforce in higher ed? Hmm. The question again. Such a <laughs> deep talking about question. Something that everyone, in quotes, should have or mm-hmm. should be doing to be prepared to be a teacher. But we know from our experience, we know from the reality of higher ed that a lot of people who teach have never been taught how to teach. Mm-hmm. Does would they care about this? They should care about this. <laughs> I think the further they get into teaching in higher ed, the more they want to learn about best practices, pedagogical methods, um, even andragogical methods, which is why I have seen more need for someone in the teaching and learning area to help some of the faculty um, because they do want to know how to do things a different way. And they see the need for students to um, not be passive learners and they want to know new ways. I think the problem is the time constraints, really. I mean, I don't, there's very few faculty that I talk to that don't want to learn how to teach better. That's a fair observation. So we're sort of talking then about those implicit drivers, the the wish to be better, do better, um, to make sure that their students are learning well. What about this idea that there's at some point in their careers a bottleneck where they can't progress into a different teaching job or better teaching job until they can demonstrate or they've completed this formal coursework? Is it fair to ask that of them? 
unless you have something in place right away that feeds into that. No, I don't think it's fair. But we require our K-12 teachers to be certified. Exactly. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest things. When I moved over to higher ed, I had such a hard time understanding that faculty don't come in with any formal training and teaching. And granted, some colleges do have that um, that training right away when they become faculty. Um, I know that like our community colleges, they have a required course that that their faculty have to take in order to teach. Um, they have to do it, I think, within a year or a year and a half or so. Um, I believe some colleges here at ASU and then, you know, in the article that we were reading, there are some so there are several colleges that have implemented this also. But it it's very interesting to me how K-12 teachers have to go through so many courses on how to teach best practices, um, teaching methodologies, learning theories in order to be a K-12 teacher, plus have constant professional development in teaching. Mm -hmm. But you get to the university level or the college level and no one has to do that. It's not a required piece. They basically just have to learn their, they have to know their subject, but not know how to actually and effectively teach it to others. And that that baffled me like great. I still probably struggle with I do struggle with it still. <laughs> it, I think that in some way or some form, there should be some sort of training for teachers, at least teaching them strategies and some of the methods and then allow them to take it from there. At least that. If there were only some sort of on-demand, professionally development-oriented podcast that they could access. <laughs> if only. If only. If only. So then we just need to get that whole micro-credential certification component that pairs with that to demonstrate. Oh, I know. That's exactly learning, where my right? mind went. Stay tuned for future episodes, folks. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, a little bit. This article, I think, is a perfect example of how this is an unfolding conversation. It has mm -hmm. been an unfolding conversation for a long time. Um, they reference a initiative called Preparing Future Faculty, which many colleges and other organizations are part of. And in fact, this highlights even a crowdsourced document where people are trying to capture which programs, which institutions require a certain level of certified teacher preparation before becoming mm -hmm. an instructor. But I think it's really easy to talk about the importance of developing pedagogical expertise, but it's a lot harder to systematically make it happen, right? From this blunt institutional perspective, from the administrative perspective, what's the motivation to invest in this kind of development or, or requirement? If you have researchers who bring in tremendous amount of grant funding, how <laughs> much are you willing to put into teaching, keeping them out if they don't have well, that requirement? And if you think about it, there's already that separation between universities. There's teaching universities and there's research universities. Right. I also think that it would help with the fluidity of learning if higher ed was a little more connected to some of the things that K-12 is doing. Because so much of the time when I look at what higher ed is, is doing in their classrooms or trying to get to, K-12 has been doing for a while. Right. And in but in higher ed, they're still thinking of it as a new 
new piece. That barrier doesn't seem very permeable. No. And if you think about the students, if they've been learning that way for so many years and then they get to higher ed and higher ed thinks, oh, this is something brand new. They don't realize how much of that stuff the students have already been doing. And if they would be a little more connected or communicate a little more or, you know, I don't know, collaborate something, um, then maybe the fluid, the fluidity of learning would happen. And it wouldn't be so difficult for students to move from K-12 to college. You know, you have some of that, that breakup at times when, and students have difficulty with that moving into college and, you know, learning a whole mm-hmm. other way yeah. or, yeah. I think institutionally, one of the problems that hiring, you know, groups are running into in higher ed is that philosophically, if they put a barrier in place that you have to have a certain amount of teaching, you know, formalized training, then they can't find people to hire. What do they do? Mm-hmm. Do they then offload that cost into developing some kind of certification program in-house, run it, Mm-hmm. So that they can assure that their faculty have a baseline level of expertise, but that's expensive. Mm-hmm. And if their requirements are different from another institution's requirements, then that poor faculty member, they move to another you know, job, they're doing this whole thing all over again. Yep. So again, there's an argument here for some sort of maybe not global standard, but at least a little bit more systematic requirement across these higher ed teaching you know, responsibilities and professions that would... All, it would hopefully make all boats rise together. This reminds me of Michael Phelps. <laughs> In what way? So right after the Olympics, he, we, ASU, hired him on to, I think, be a coach for our athletics, the swim team or you know, something like that. But do we even know if he's a good teacher? This man's an Olympic champion. He knows how to train. He knows how to listen to a, a coach. But does he know how to teach? And maybe he does. And Michael Phelps, if you're listening, I'm sure you're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, go USA. But, you know, we in higher ed, we want the name brand status. We want that subject matter expert who is known by name in the field. And and there's value in that. Yeah. Absolutely. It's important too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It just, okay. So, but my, the parallel, I think back to when I was younger, I was learning to play bass guitar. I went to a, a, a school where I, t- I learned music and one of my classmates, I can't call him colleague, one of my classmates, he took lessons from Chuck Rainey. He's a bass player for a lot of people, but maybe most famous was Steely Dan. Oh, good old Steely Dan. Yeah. And, mm. and so this guy was top notch. So I asked him the next day, I asked my, my friend, I was like, how did that bass lesson go? And he tells me, man, I played for him for an hour. And all he said was, keep doing what you're doing. You're looking good, kid. <laughs> I charged him a hundred bucks. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So and I don't think Chuck Rainey was trying to like, just take money from the kid and, and you know, not do any work. I, I'm sure in his mind, he was offering support, but you know, that's not really being a good teacher. Right. Right. So Chuck Rainey, if you're listening, I love your stuff, man. <laughs> so, you're all over the map with this one, Aaron. Well, but the parallel is that we want the name brand. You don't want to go to, to Aaron Kraft on the street for bass lessons. You want to go to Chuck Rainey. You don't want to go to, to whatever college. You want to go study swimming with Michael Phelps at ASU. But do we even know if these are good teachers? The, those sort of expectations are embedded in the idea, in the traditional idea of what higher education is. That has to change, but I think with the emergence of these programs centered at improving uh, faculty's ability to teach, you're starting to see an emerging awareness that it reflects poorly if you have students who 
uh, at the end of an entire semester still haven't learned much and, and the faculty is getting poor reviews because of it. Uh, instead, we need to flip it so everybody, so all the boats rise together. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Well, you all definitely had some hot takes on our hot topic today. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> I'd like to sincerely thank our special guest, Julie McGinnis, for joining us in an exploration of all things project management. And as always, a big thank you to Celia Kuchwatiwa and Aaron Kraft for productively pondering the perils of project <laughs> management. Bonus alliteration for you, Aaron. <laughs> Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. Feel free to share your experiences and tips for practical project management or pitch out a hot topic you'd like to hear us dissect. What was that project? What? What were those peas? <laughs> Productively oh, pondering. Which one? The perils of project management. Productively pondering the perils of project management. Yeah, <laughs> that feels good. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instruction by design at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Plus, I, you know, look at the job market out there, which I haven't been doing lately. It, boss. <laughs> <laughs> I've not been looking for a Yet job. we are oh, back to awkward wow. land. <laughs>